Well, welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. My name's Kyle Diaz. I'm Ryan Harrington. And we should probably honestly address the elephant in the room before we really get started, and that is our, uh, what is it, like five-month hiatus that we accidentally took? The extended hiatus yeah. from, I guess our last episode was, ooh, October 8th, 2012. Yeah, we talked about Looper. Uh, there are all kinds of stuff that happened in the middle. You know, you your coast got hit by a hurricane. Uh, you were flooded out of your apartment for a couple weeks. Yep. Like, crashed on people's couches, and then your laptop broke. I went to Japan for a couple weeks, and all kinds of stuff happened. But really, I think we can agree that the main source of the uh, of the delay was that neither of us wanted to watch uh, Cars 2. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really too bad, because we did miss a couple good plot or good topics that we will now have to just kind of skip over. Yeah, exactly. There were a lot of movies that came out in that time which is why I decided to write up a little movie post on my mostly defunct blog. So, if there I'm was... glad you got the URL back. Yeah, <laughs> me too. No one swooped in and purchased it out from under you. Nobody stole it. So if you were just dying to know what we thought of uh, Les Mis or Lincoln or stuff like that that we didn't get a chance to talk about, you can go check that. I will put a link in the, in the show notes. Uh, okay, so our favorite this week is favorite episode of 30 Rock. Um... Uh, we're doing this kind of in honor of 30 Rock's recent uh, recent finale. Uh, went off the air after seven seasons. More like six and a half, I think, because there were only 12 episodes or something in that last season. Um, um, and then, I mean, obviously those... Oh, what year was it? During their second season mm-hmm. with the writer's strike? Oh, yeah. So that was probably only like 12 also, right? Yeah. It's it's kind of funny because... And you should tell me if you disagree with this statement that I'm about to make, but... Uh, 30 Rock had gotten so good for so long that it had become a a little bit boring. Like, not boring to watch, but kind of boring to talk about. It was just like, oh yeah, 30 Rock, like, still good, as always. It's kind of like the New England Patriots (laughs) of television. Um, But uh, having it go off the air made everybody really realize, like, what a gift it was and and how amazing it is that something so kind of uh, experimental and wild and crazy and super funny on such a consistent basis uh, was going off the air. So um, there are a lot of good stuff I've read about, you know, appreciations of the show as it, as it departs. And, and uh, I don't know, it was nice to, to, uh, I spent some time uh, prepping for this episode by going back and watching all my favorite episodes of 30 Rock. And it was, uh, it was just a reminder how good this show is, you know, across the years. Uh, Certainly. Um, I do think, it set such a high standard for itself, um, and probably around season five, it may have slumped a little bit. Yeah, I think I, I think around the time which, that they brought in Avery Jessup. Um, yeah, which isn't to say that it was bad. No, just because it's a really good show. It's just it's hard to live up to some of the greatest moments you have, and then you just keep churning out more episodes. But I do. You know, when you do a hundred episodes, not all of them are going to be as good as, you know, Tracy Morgan running around in his underwear waving a lightsaber. Yeah, and I do think that it really came back in its end of sixth and and especially in its seventh seasons where it was just really firing on all cylinders. And one of the things that was interesting is when I went back and watched the older episodes, it was really fascinating to me how much slower they are. Um, 
I think that one of the things that I didn't really realize as the show was going on was that it basically was continuing to accelerate the pace of the jokes um, and uh, and the plot to where it was stuffing so much more into its later episodes than it than it was into its earlier ones. And it got a lot stranger too. Like it was it was much much more uh, wacky and out there uh, in its later seasons, which was saying something because it was pretty wacky and out there at the beginning too. So uh, what's your what's your pick for this? I'm interested to hear what you uh, what you pick because I'm hoping I have the same one. <laughs> um, I mean it. It's really hard to pick a favorite, um, especially um, since I haven't seen many episodes in a really long time. Mm-hmm. But um, and especially because I have a feeling I think I know what you're going to pick. I went with um, Succession. Which is season two, episode thirteen. Oh, interesting. Um, it has it has a lot of great uh, notes. We see Will Arnett as Devin Banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Chris Parnell come back as Dr. Leo Spichemin. We have uh, Tracy and Frank doing the whole Amadeus mm-hmm. uh, thing with making the porn video game. <laughs> um. And it had um, one of my favorite uh, Liz Lemon quotes, which was, oh, what was it? It's, who has two thumbs, speaks limited French, and hasn't cried once today? This one. <laughs> yeah, that's a great episode. I've, the whole Tracy pornography video game thing it was so great and so well done. Uh, I don't know. It's, just, <laughs> it's such a random... It's it's kind of like it's not quite as bad as when Community did a whole spoof of My Dinner with Andre, but it's like pretty close. It's like Amadeus is not a film that is just you know close to people's minds these days. True, uh, true. I don't know. I think it's kind of hilarious. That's a good pick. That's a great episode. Oh, I forgot. And when Doctor Elias Pachem is on the phone, he's like, uh, "Diabetes repair, I guess." <laughs> <laughs> trying to fix Don Guys. <laughs> Wait, was that the is that this that's not the episode where Tracy gets diagnosed with diabetes, is it? No, no, no. Don Geis uh ripped horn like oh uh, yeah. Pass like goes into a coma. And so he he calls like 911. And it's like, "What's your emergency?" He's like, uh, <laughs> "Diabetes repair." Probably my favorite. Probably my favorite Spachaman quote Dr. Dr. Spachaman is probably one of my favorite characters on 30 Rock. Maybe my favorite character. Um, and one of my favorite quotes is when he says, Tracy, I don't know how to say this, but you have diabetes. (laughs) (laughs) I have diabetes. Ah, that's, Ah. that's from another season two episode. I forget which one though. Uh, so I had a bunch of runners up to this that I'll I'll go through just really briefly, um, that all had just little things that kept them from being in there. Um, I really liked Gavin Velour. Uh, oh, of course. A, a season episode, uh, a season two episode with Steve Martin as the reclusive agoraphobe. Uh, it's like the first funny thing Martin's done since like Bowfinger, like fourteen years ago, and it was nice to see him kind of be funny again. Since Bowfinger, yeah, Bowfinger is okay. an awesome movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I really like Apollo Apollo, uh, where they have to put on a fake uh, space shuttle launch so that Tracy can go to space. Um, oh, which was another season. I think it was season three, actually. Uh, Thirty Rock did some great stuff with space. It's this is not the episode where 
Uh, Liz gets to yell at the moon with Buzz Aldrin, but that one is also very funny. Um, <laughs> that one? <laughs> oh, Apollo Apollo is also the one where Dennis Duffy self-diagnoses himself with uh, uh, sex, addi- sex addiction, addiction. So he has to go around and tell all his old girlfriends that he is a sex addict, and he uh, he has to tell both uh, Liz and Jenna, which causes the friction between them. Mm. Um, that's a great episode. Uh, Sandwich Day is a great episode. Oh, Sandwich Day is, yeah, that was they have to definitely have the, end of the running. They definitely have to have the, uh, you know, the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, drinking contest with the Teamsters and stuff like that. And um, and then the one that I came the closest to picking besides my actual pick was Rosemary's Baby. Oh, with... Uh, with Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher. As, like, the kooky old comedy writer from, like, the 70s when they really were allowed to push the limits. Um I really love that episode. I think it is um it's just incredibly funny. Um it it's uh it also has the tracing. It, Tracy wants to do dog fighting and then Jack has to uh kind of be his psychiatrist oh. by acting out all of the different roles. <laughs> that was amazing. One of the funniest scenes in, in television history in my opinion. Uh Tracy, maybe it will help if Jack sits in the chair and pretends to be your father. I want to talk to you, son. You sound nothing like my dad. Well, where's he from? All I know is he's from funky North Philly. He worked in a Campbell Soup factory, and he had a droopy lip due to an unattended root canal. I think I can do this. Okay, go. I'm mad at you, Dad. Hey, dummy. I'm mad at you, too. Why you got to act out that way? Uh, that's not exactly what I have. Because you left me, Dad. I was young and confused, and your moms didn't want me around no more. Now pass me them damn collard greens. Is this true, Mom? He gambled away my welfare check. Woman, I got a mind to smack you upside the head. Uh, this is not helpful. Be me now. I only act out because I want your love. That on my. I think we're just doing good times now. Now do the white dude that my mom's left my dad for. Uh, now see here, Tracy. It's impolite to slurp one soup. Whoa, no need to resort to ugly stereotypes. Um... And uh, I don't know. It's just a, it's a great episode, but I I I didn't pick it because I think the C plot where uh, Jenna accidentally destroys Kenneth's page jacket and they have to have a page off is you hate Paul Shear. I hate Paul Shear so much. I find him so incredibly off putting, and I just think that whole storyline is not very funny and also doesn't really go anywhere, which is the joke of it, but is also. I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. So it's like, a, you know, there's a good six or seven minutes in that episode that that don't work. So my actual pick is probably the one that you were assuming I was going to pick, which is Tracy Does Conan. It's it's like an episode you showed to get people yeah. hooked on this show. It really is. It's a season one episode. It's only the seventh episode of the series or something like that. Um, and what I love about it is that it foreshadows everything that is going to make this show really great that they're just figuring out. So it's the first episode appearance of uh dr spaceman uh leo spachaman um Mm -hmm. who is just as funny in in his first appearance as he would be in all the rest of his appearances um every plot is really is really on point um you know there's no like weak a b or c plot uh they're all hilarious it's got the incredible line about the tuxedo and the farmer 
from Jack who keeps calling Liz up to his office to yes um you know to to make her give him jokes for a dinner that turns out not to be for six or seven months um uh, it, and it also it just it does that sense of of hilariously uh hilarious chaos the end of the the whole end of the episode is set to uh like flight of the bumblebees or maybe it's not flight of the bumblebees it's some classical song um that that um just gives this sense that the wheels are coming off everything and everything is just spinning out of control um and i think they would harness that a lot in their later seasons um i'm thinking of like the episode where uh liz uh turns into the joker somehow um by being in New York, she like becomes the quintessential like New York crazy lady and like devolves oh. into like the Joker from from Dark Knight, um, and just all kinds of episodes throughout the years that would kind of harness that same kind of uh, absurd manic disaster or, or chaos is happening. Um, but I I just think it's it's kind of in my opinion it, it is. Um, it's not necessarily the height, but it's maybe the the first uh, inkling that, of what this show is going to be. And I also really liked that they teased in this episode, they just teased a little uh, past relationship between Conan O'Brien and Liz Lemon, and they would not mention it again until the last episode of the series. In the season finale, they brought that full circle, and Conan reappears, and they kind of... Uh, is this really the only other episode they mentioned that? Mm-hmm. Maybe they mention it, but Conan doesn't appear as a guest star in any other episodes. Yeah, I feel like I feel like they mention it. Before. Oh man! If if this is the only time, I'd be really impressed. I think it's just a, an incredible, uh, an incredible, uh, you know, an example of restraint to never bring Conan back until the very last episode. Oh, this is this is funny. Aubrey Plaza played a page in the TV show yeah, or that did. episode. And she was actually a page. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I saw she her. was actually an MC page at the time. I saw her when I was watching the episode, and I was like, holy shit, that's Aubrey Plaza. <laughs> but I did not realize that she was actually a page. That's hilarious. Oh, and this episode, I can't believe I forgot this. It also has the incredible plot line of Pete Hornberger wearing this wig that makes him into like the manliest man on the planet. So, like, like, he's in, like, props or something, and they put this wig on him as a joke, and then Jack makes him wear it because he thinks it makes him look more forceful. And then at the end, uh, Kenneth is trying to deliver Tracy's medicine to him before he goes on Conan, and he can't get through this crowd of people who were watching Aubrey Plaza give the page uh, tour. And then... uh, Pete shows up with the wig on. He's like, let him through! And like, everybody parts and it's... Oh man, this is such a good episode. Um, so I think that's my favorite really, episode. I was a little really bummed to realize... I, I, it was a little bummed to realize how many of my favorites were from season one or two. And I think just in terms of consistency, I think season two is probably the best season. But... Um, no, definitely. I did, season... I did think they they figured some stuff out later rather than earlier. Like, I don't think they really figured out how to make Jenna really funny until, like, season six. Because just at some point, like, everything that Jenna said started to be incredibly funny. But it wasn't, it wasn't for a little while. Like, it wasn't, I don't, I don't, I didn't like her at the beginning. I didn't think she was as funny as everybody else was. Um, But somewhere in the middle there, 
they like figured out how to write her character, and it became just absolutely transcendent. And I don't know exactly when that shift happened. Um, I feel like it was. I feel like after like season after like four season five seasons, her character was kind of defined, and that at that point they could just make it a parody of herself. I'm going to need your help for that. Do you need a sex tape released? Because I got a weird one. It's night vision, and you can see that his buddy is robbing me. No, Jenna, I want you on the PR warpath. There's a red carpet. I want you on it. Talking up the movie starting Monday. The Kids' Choice Awards? Fine. I'll set aside my feud with Raven Simone for one day. But she knows what she did. And I think in the later seasons, they also started pairing up uh Jenna and Tracy which they, they didn't really do that I remember the the problem solvers episode was like the first one that I can remember where um where they kind of became a little duo instead of being having an antagonistic relationship that like they'd both come to terms with the fact that they were going to be on the show and they became friends uh and right. that duo never failed to produce comedy gold um I think one of the funniest things they did in in the later seasons was there's an episode with Kelsey Grammer where he just shows up and he's, oh. he's like an expert at hiding bodies and they're trying to hide Pete's body because they accidentally it was like it's very convoluted but um, there's like, like a lot of chloroform going yeah, on and like, stuff right like Jenna Jenna Tracy Kenneth and Kelsey Grammer working together to hide Pete Hornberger's body it was is was just comedy gold anyway so that's my favorite Tracy does Conan but I think Succession is also very good and it really there's just a bunch of those. Uh, season two episodes that you could pick if you want to. I think I mean, Seinfeld, honestly, yeah, looking at season two, it's really good. I think Seinfeld Vision is hilarious. Um, uh, I think that um, ev- basically everything. With, Subway Hero was really good. Subway Hero was really good. Milf Island was really good. Milf Island. <laughs> um, even the uh, the the kind of uh, recurring characters on Thirty Rock were really strong. I mean, we talked about. Doctors Pachaman a lot, but um, uh, Len, the private eye. Oh, uh, Steve Buscemi. It is also an example of a character who I didn't actually think was very funny in his first couple appearances, but just every time they brought him back, he got funnier. I was never a big fan of the live episodes. I didn't think either of the of the live episodes were all that good, except for except for the skit with uh, Tracy and John Hamm in blackface where he, they're they're parroting like Amos and Andy. Oh, that was yeah. <laughs> but Tracy plays this like, you know, very uh dignified uh like, you know, uh very dignified black man who was like a Tuskegee airman and who thinks that this is supposed to be like, you know, portrayal of real African American life in the fifties, but <laughs> John Amos is like this horrible <laughs> racist caricature. It's I and I just I don't know, that was so funny. So let's talk about House of Cards. Um, there's kind of two things that we have to talk about when you talk about House of Cards. There's like the show itself and the quality of the show itself. And then there's the whole kind of meta aspect re- revolving around the production and release and everything like that. So I, I think we should kind of separate those a little bit. Um, maybe we should talk about the material first, like what the show actually is like, and then talk after that about what the show kind of means and stuff like that. Uh, okay. Um, what's your 
what's your background with Fincher? Do you are you a Fincher fan? Are you not a Fincher uh, fan? What do you? Yeah. Um. I mean, let me bring up his filmography. Yeah, looking at it here, I have seen everything except Alien Three and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Okay. Oh, is is the game that movie where um who is it? Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas like yeah, thinks yeah, like, like someone's like trying to take o- like take over his life and then it or something or yes, kill him. That that is the game. And then it turns out and then it's like this whole big thing and he gets like all, all paranoid and then mm-hmm. it's like oh it's just kidding. Yes, that is the game. Okay, I've not seen that. <laughs> but I read about it. You know a lot about it, but not having seen it. <laughs> um, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, Curious Case of Benjamin Buttons. So yeah, I've pretty much seen. I've seen um, all the big features except, I guess, the game. I've always been a little cool toward Fincher because um, I find his his. Um, his worldview very wearying. Um, the way that he's so consistent, like so incredibly dark and cynical about everything. So I, I don't really like Seven. I didn't like the game very much. I don't really like Fight Club. Um, um just, I really I just, like Seven. Mm. Um, I think Fight Club does not hold up as you get older. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Like when you're in high school, everything it it espouses really seems to hit home. Yeah. And then you kind of grow up and... Realize it's kind of sad. Yeah. Which is why I think The Social Network is such an interesting film, because it marries Fincher's kind of deep cynicism about everything with Aaron Sorkin's kind of naive, almost cloying idealism about everything. And it's it's like a combination that shouldn't work, but somehow it does. Um... I think they really complemented each other well in that. So, going into House of Cards, I was a little bit afraid that it was just going to be um, bleak and depressing and was going to make me sad about everything. Um, and then in the very first scene of House of Cards, um, Kevin Spacey yes. Kevin Spacey strangles a dying dog in the street. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, this is this is definitely David Fincher while giving like some lecture about how there's useful pain and there's useless pain, and he's just helping this animal uh, stop being useless by you know taking it out of the world. It's okay. There are two kinds of pain: the sort of pain that makes you strong, or useless pain, the sort of pain that's only suffering. I have no patience for useless things. Moments like this require someone who will act. Will do the unpleasant thing. The necessary thing. There. No more pain. So, um, but I actually find myself enjoying House of Cards a lot. Um, it's, it is dark and cynical and, and, in, in ways that it uh, that that I don't think are necessarily justified, which we can we can talk about. But um, overall, I, I find it uh, kind of deliciously, deliciously dark and not uh, depressingly dark. And it's I think it's interesting you brought up uh, the parallel or the social network and him working with Aaron Sorkin because uh, I think House of Cards is a 
very good contrast to Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing. Yeah, I which agree. is just full idealism and and like hope for American politics. And House of Cards is very clearly the opposite of that. Yeah, and I think that they're both unrealistic on opposite sides of the spectrum. So I think that the West Wing, the West Wing probably could have benefited. The West Wing probably could have benefited from a little bit of House of Cards' cynicism, and House of Cards could probably benefit from a little bit of West Wing optimism. But um, uh, no, and I think um, what really the saving grace of House of Cards is the performances. Um, I actually found Fincher. You've seen the first two episodes. I've seen the first four. Um, mm-hmm. He's pretty hands off, honestly. It doesn't really, it doesn't make a strong visual stamp on it, which I think is uh, probably a good thing. I mean, the most distinctive thing about the series is the whole breaking the fourth wall, Kevin Spacey, the, directly, the soliloquies, mm-hmm, directly at monologuing to the camera. But that's right. borrowed directly from the original, uh, yeah. which I haven't seen. And that's one of the things I do not like about the series. I find it uh they over they rely on it too much but um most of the time it doesn't bother me. Uh, I find it kind of uh takes you out of the moment. Yeah. And it also seems like a lazy way to get some exposition in. It seems very stagey to me. Um Well, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's very it's very uh, it reminds me of a play which it's not yeah. always a bad thing. I, I, I find it doesn't take me out. I heard a really interesting interview with Fincher and and Spacey together on, on Fresh Air where they were talking about kind of the motivations of going with that uh, with that and the dangers of going with that um, with that model. And they were saying that even the original scripts had more of those in them and they would discover. Oh, wow. They would discover that sometimes you just needed things like a look. Like there's a couple times when when Spacey just looks at the camera and, like, raises his eyebrows instead of actually saying anything. And I guess in a lot of those moments in the original, there was actually more dialogue, so I think that they probably did well to strip it out. Um, uh, but I think the strongest thing here is not actually Fincher. It's it's Spacey and the rest of the performances. His performance across the border is incredibly strong. Um Definitely, and, and elevate. I think what could be kind of silly dialogue just by dint of of who's uh, who's saying them. Like somehow lines that would be ridiculous anywhere else, like become become uh, 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 powerful just because. There's a line in the first one that was like, Spacey says something like, "I love that woman. I love her like a shark loves blood." Which is like not a good line. Like I, I feel like if you wrote that line in a book, like the editor would like cross it out. But um, just because it's it's Spacey saying it in uh, the South Carolina drawl that he's kind of perfected, it it kind of works in the moment. Um, surprised by how much I like Robin Wright Penn or Robin Wright, I guess. Yeah. No. Um, really. Anymore. Yeah, I think she does a good job of. Um, I mean, I just I'm just curious why you were. Uh... So, you had such low expectations, almost, make it sound like. Uh, yeah, I mean, she just hasn't done much in a while. I mean, maybe that's unfair, but I feel like the roles that she was really known for, and, you know, Forrest Gump and Princess Bride and stuff, they're all such a long time ago. Um, fair, fair. So, I'm looking at her filmography, and I saw her in Moneyball. She was in that for, like, a half a scene. Um didn't see Rampart, don't remember her being motion captured in Beowulf. 
uh, liked her fine and unbreakable, but you know now we're talking back in 2000, so I don't think she's done much in the last couple of years to to uh, prove to me that she's still you know around and, and interesting. Although I guess she wasn't girl with the dragon tattoo, which again I haven't seen. Oh, you didn't see it? No, I did not. I thought you did for some reason. I have no knowledge of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo franchise. I haven't read any of the books. I haven't watched the Swedish film. I haven't watched the American film. I haven't, haven't seen it. Um, I watched. I saw. I saw. Um, his Fincher's adaptation. Um, and I tried to watch the original. Mm-hmm. Um, but it starts out with a good twenty twenty five minutes of just like background of the main character going through uh the lawsuit that were <laughs> I don't know if you know anything about the plot. Not at all. So he's like a the main character's like a journalist and uh he gets sued for uh libel mm. um by a a big businessman and so a good the good twenty minutes in the beginning of of the uh, original film is just talking about this court case and <laughs> libel and it's really boring especially care. when it's subtitles yeah <laughs> so i kind of stopped it and i was just like yeah 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 um but even beyond the you know the uh, their relationship is really fascinating to me and I, and it gets more interesting in the next two episodes um and i'm sure throughout the rest of the series uh and and I think that they do a really good job playing off each other. They seem very believable with one another to me. Um, but, you know, just going through the rest of the cast, Kate Mara is good as Zoe Barnes, even if that's the character that I have the most problem with. Um, I think the guy who plays the slimy congressman is pretty good. I think the guy who plays... Which which congressman? The bald um, guy. Russo? Yes. I think the guy who plays Underwood's uh, Francis Underwood, Kevin Spacey's character, his like chief of staff, the really slimy guy, uh, does a good oh, job. Him, yeah. Uh, I think I think that that's one one of the problems with this series is they throw out a lot of characters. Yeah. In the first episode, and um, I, I am struggling to keep them all straight. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of true, and. Uh, it, it, a lot of them I don't really understand what their importance is going to be, and I don't think they have any importance until later. They're just kind of there for the moment. So it's like a little bit annoying because it's like, why do I care about this person? You, you don't yet. Yeah. yeah. I I mean, yeah, I agree with you there. Again, I've only seen two episodes, but I feel like there are way too many characters that they've introduced at the Washington Herald Yeah. Oh, for me to care about. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, you've got... Both of her bosses. You've got her like immediate boss, and also her like uber boss. Yeah. So you have you have her mm-hmm. Barnes, and then there's that one guy that she normally works under. Yeah. Lucas. She got she got her editor, but then there's also Tom, who's the editor of the paper. Who's like the the head editor. And then there's also the and there's like the head the political political correspondent. correspondent or whatever. I have a feeling that she will turn out to be really important based on what I've read. She, uh, she prob she she probably has the most significance, but like the two guys. Yeah, I don't understand why there's two of them. Even after four episodes, her immediate editor, Lucas, has not done anything. Seems like he should have just been cut out. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe he'll be important, too. I don't really I don't I don't know. know. But The first the first two are mostly concerned, I guess, with um, 
the education bill in the hundred first hundred days, mm-hmm. and uh, getting uh, Durant appointed Secretary of State over mm. Kern. Yeah. I think there are some legitimate criticisms of the way that the world of the film works. Oh, um, right. Uh, and, and the biggest one that I think is that... Um, so he's supposed to be this guy who can get anything done. He says in the first episode that he uh, he keeps the sludge moving and stuff like that. Um, and yet he's kind of... He's wronged in the first episode and he vows to take it out on the administration whatever way he can. And he does sink their nominee for Secretary of State but he doesn't really appear to be going nuclear war against them. He also works pretty hard to get stuff passed. He works pretty hard to get the education bill passed and stuff like that. And so, I, I don't know. I feel like in, in Congress today, the problem is not what they're getting done. It's that they're not getting anything done at all. You know, they've, the one party has decided that they can gum up the works by just not voting on anything ever and seeing, or just saying no to everything that does actually come to the floor. Mm-hmm. Um so I think it's a it's a kind of a strange thing where I don't really understand the contours of his revenge yet because he says in the first episode how livid he is, but I don't understand what his long game is because he almost immediately achieves what he wanted to achieve, which is to keep the the other Secretary of State from being confirmed. But I don't think that's really what he wanted to achieve. I yeah. mean, like I think that was a very small part of it. Yeah, I think I think as a series goes on we'll see even after four episodes uh his plan is is not is not uh is not apparent to me but i think it's interesting that from like the screenwriter's point of view frank can get his revenge by doing all kinds of things but actually in the real world the way this works is that politicians get their revenge by just not doing anything at all I also think that the everything about the way that the Washington Herald works is pretty stupid. It doesn't actually work anything like a newspaper does in the real world. Um, and I think that the the House of Cards people make a similar mistake to what I think the newsroom people made um, and uh, to what many portrayals of, of the journalism world make. I think that The Wire actually did this badly also in its fifth season. Um and it attributes things to malice that are more easily explainable by laziness. Um, so, like, uh, in the in House of Cards, it's treated as a huge deal that the Kate Mara character would run a story based on a single anonymous source, right? Like, her editors can't believe that she would do such a thing, and, like, it's this source of big controversy. She's quite rebellious for doing it. Um... But in reality, political reporters run unsourced or anonymously sourced stories that are mostly speculation all the time. It's like practically the only thing they run. You know, like there's all kinds of stories where you see like, according to unnamed administration officials, blah, 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 blah. Um, And the whole thing about her like wanting a blog and they like won't give her a blog is also like... totally baffling to me. She's a young reporter who wants to do nothing but get them page views for cheap, and they don't have to pay for anything. She just wants to sit in an office and write blog posts. The the, the newspapers in Washington are more than happy to pay people 
super cheap and for them to have no expenses and for them to just sit in a room and write things they could page views. Like they're, there's like the Washington post is lousy with blogs. That's all over there. Um, <laughs> so, and they're, and they're from young people too. You know, they've got Ezra Klein, who's kind of a little boy wonderkind, but they've also got young bloggers writing everything from national security to movies to, uh, you know, the Washington gossip columns and stuff like that. Like this, I don't, I don't really understand any of the things that happen at the paper or their reasons for doing them. Um, and it seems very much like they needed somebody for Zoe to explain all of this new media blog, publish first, ask questions later stuff too. And so the person that she explains that stuff to ends up being her editors, but it makes no sense that her editors wouldn't already be on board with the stuff that she's doing because it's easy and it's cheap and it gets some page views, which is what all of the Washington papers want. So it's just... I'm, I, I don't I don't really hold up the U.S. press corps as like a, or the you know Washington press corps as like a paragon of how journalism should be run, although they do occasionally produce very good stuff, but they also do a lot of really lazy or horse race reporting or stenography where they just repeat what sources say to them. But the problems that House of Cards seems to have with them are not the problems that I think actually exist in the real world. So I think it's it's just interesting because I think. It's a, it seems to be a really hard thing for movies to get right because the newsroom is also a totally incomprehensible uh, portrait of how you know newsrooms actually work and <laughs> and in in somewhat of different ways but also in somewhat of the same ways so it's just it's just weird to me but those are pretty minor quibbles I mean I don't really have a problem with a show like this taking liberties with how things actually work. Uh, Considering that, uh, you know, it is a it is a television show, right? I don't believe as much as the House of Cards would like us to believe. I do not believe that the majority whip actually has as much power as they're ascribing to him. You don't even know who the Kurt McCarty, uh, uh, uh majority whip is. What? No. Do you even know it's Kevin McCarthy, yeah. congressman from Bakersfield. Oh, I do not understand. I do not believe that Kevin McCarthy is somehow secretly, uh, you know, dooming nominations and running the no, whole country. And no, stuff I like do that. not believe that at all. I <laughs> think he's just a dude who counts the votes. So pretty uh, much. <laughs> I do also think it's interesting because I can't figure out what the political reality of the world of House of Cards is. Quite. It took a little while before I could figure out what party Underwood was. He's a Democrat. And the right. president is also a Democrat. So if he's House Majority Whip, then that means that the Democrats control both the House and the presidency, which makes me wonder, like, who controls the Senate in this scenario? Because in the real world, the Democrats control the Senate. And I wonder, is it flipped? Um, because if you had majorities in the House, Senate, and the executive branch, then it doesn't seem to matter what... It shouldn't be a problem to do anything. It doesn't matter what Frank Underwood do. They can do anything they want to. So I don't really understand... Yeah, I don't really understand what uh, what the contours of their political world are like. Yeah, maybe it will, maybe we'll find out more about that in a later episode. Um, but I do think it's exactly what Netflix wanted, which is something that's almost compulsively watchable. Like you can just queue up another episode and and keep going, and it's I I have been gobbling them up, and I'm I'm sure I'll finish them soon. Yeah, I think Jason has. Um, Jason is on a horrible sleep schedule right now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I woke up at 4 a.m. to go to the bathroom last night, and he was up watching TV. <laughs> and uh, I came home and turned on the Apple TV after mm. work, and I saw that he was already on episode 7. Mm. <laughs> so he's been going through them pretty quick. Yeah. Well, maybe we should talk about this then, because now we're, now we're talking more about the unusual way that Netflix has released this and what they actually want to gain from this and stuff like that. Um, so let's talk about this a little bit. This is an original series funded by Netflix, and I, I could have sworn to God we talked about this back when it was first announced, but I couldn't find it in our podcast archives. But but this is an interesting show because it's an it's an original production by Netflix. They partnered with a, you know, with a production company to make this, and there's no cable company in the chain anywhere here. Um, and it's kind of Netflix's first big gambit into the world of original programming. Into and um, they've done some interesting stuff. So one of the things that they've done is they've released all 13 episodes at the same time instead of spreading them out over, you know, a season like a normal television network would do. Um, they did this with Lily Hammer also, which is an, uh, uh, a uh, Netflix original series starring Stephen Van Zant of the Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and the Sopranos as a mobster who retires to, like, small-town Norway or something. Um, that seemed like a very modest opening gambit, uh, and I don't know of many people who've seen it or liked it. Um, but this is, like, their big... This is, like, their big splash. Um, I'm really fascinated by what Netflix's angle is here. Um, you know, they uh, have kind of gotten screwed in the last couple of years because after... Um, they were able to secure some streaming rights very cheaply when they first came on the scene, and over the last couple of years, the costs for those have just been going up and up and up. Um, and we saw things happen, like their deal with Stars expired, and they lost a bunch of movies that way, and I think just in general, the movie studios have been much less willing to license their streaming rights to Netflix because it's seen more and more as a competitor. Right. Um, and I... Uh, I just think it's really interesting that they've chosen to go this route and they've just said, well, if you're, if it's going to cost us $100 million to license something, then let's just spend $100 million making something really kick-ass and then we'll be the only ones who have it. Um, and I saw a quote from a, an H, uh, a Netflix executive who said, we want to become HBO faster than HBO. We want to become the next HBO faster than HBO can become the next HBO or something like that, where they basically want to be the place for really interesting, compelling narrative programming going forward and they think one of the places that they can bring value is by letting people just binge watch everything right when it comes out by releasing it all at once um i don't know it's kind of a it's kind of a shot fired across the bow of cable television don't you think yeah definitely um and i think that's definitely become how people consume tv now Mm -hmm. um and that's where Netflix shines. It's it's not actually any different than the way I consumed the Netflix. I mean the the Netflix, the West Wing. The first time I watched it, like I didn't watch the Net, the West Wing until it had basically already gone off off the air, um, and I watched it, you know, in giant uh, in giant gulps, uh, six or seven episodes at a time for a couple months and then I was done and like I don't I don't know it was it seems like a long time ago that no one else has done this yet but I guess I've just been relying on you know DVD box sets to fill that kind of void or or Netflix in later years but right um 
I don't know. I think it's interesting. It really kind of makes you question some of your assumptions about the way that this stuff is supposed to work. So, like, at the, at the first, it seems like, well, that's crazy. Like, why would they release it all at once? But then you realize that we don't actually consume that much other serialized media. You know? Like, people don't release novels chapter by chapter anymore. Um, uh, you know, movies obviously don't work that way, but... Um, uh, it, it's just, it's just, we don't, we don't seem to feel that that expectation that that, you know, that waiting period is necessary for, for much else besides television these days. But I don't even, I don't know. I see. I don't even think that's true for TV. I don't, yeah. what, what serial, serialized TV are people like following like every week? And it's true that like, um, even things like cliffhangers usually tend to come at the end of seasons, which would still be preserved in this new model, because obviously, you know, after we finish House of Cards now, we're not going to get another House of Cards season until probably 2014, so... Um, right. You know, they'll still have that kind of way to to keep you hanging if you if they want to. Most shows don't even end in a cliffhanger like that. Um I don't know, it's just really interesting to me. The economics of it make more sense than I assumed at the beginning. I read a really interesting article on the Atlantic Wire about this. Um, and um, I was surprised to learn that... So Netflix has 33 million subscribers at seven ninety nine a month, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I didn't realize that HBO actually only gets about $7 a month per subscriber, and it also only has about 30 million subscribers. So obviously HBO has a lot of things that Netflix doesn't. It has this giant movie uh, or a cable company that owns it, and it can use their, you know, resources and stuff like that. And it doesn't have to exist as its own entity. But that's a lot closer than I realized, especially considering HBO has um, way more shows running at the moment than Netflix does, and it somehow manages to produce them all profitably as well. Um, and presumably, some of the ways that HBO makes money. Netflix will also be able to make money, so I'm not sure if Netflix is going to release this on DVD, for example, but they can also do like product placement and all the other stuff that you know these people do to to do that. So, I don't know, if HBO at the same number of subscribers and approximately the same dollar value per subscriber per month can afford to make True Blood and Boardwalk Empire and Game of Thrones and you know all these shows at the exact same time, then it seems to me like Netflix should be able to do you know, five or so a year, which is what they say their goal is. Um, I don't know. And I think it's interesting, too, to to see where this is going to lead. So Netflix wants to do a couple of shows this year. Um, They've got four listed here on Wikipedia. So in addition to Lilyhammer and House of Cards, they're obviously going to be bringing Arrested Development back in May. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that. Yeah. Um, They picked up exclusive rights to Derek, which is a Ricky Gervais comedy that has aired in England or some of it's aired in England but not all of it or something like that um, they're producing Hemlock Grove a horror show uh, yeah that one actually looked really interesting by Eli Roth that I'm pretty, in- pretty interested to see and then Orange is the New Black is a uh, comedy set in an all female prison I think I've got that right with Jason Biggs in it which um, okay <laughs> uh, okay. I don't know how to feel about that one? It's got Kate Mulgrew who played uh, Captain Janeway on Star Trek Voyager. It's be nice to see her in something else. Um, so I don't, I don't really know how how that's gonna work out for them. I, I don't, I'm not, you know, incredibly excited for any of those except for uh, 
Arrested Development, but I'm cautiously interested. Um, and most of those go on in the next couple months. So I, the Arrested Development's May, I think Hemlock Grove is April, and Derek is also supposed to be beginning or middle of the year. So, Well, Derek is, is like, airing overseas, right? Yeah, I think it's airing in, in England right now. Yeah, so I'm sure I'm sure that'll come out. Well, it'll probably come out um, once they wrap up in England. And then I wonder too, what's going to happen with other other companies that are kind of trying to do the same thing that Netflix is. So, you know, Netflix gets uh, eight dollars per subscriber per month, which is pretty good. But I wonder what would happen if, say, Apple decided it wanted to do some of these and sell them at two ninety nine an episode, like they do with everything else. That seems way more lucrative. Um, probably a little bit higher, uh, you know, harder of a row to hoe, um, getting people to pay $20 or $30 for just one series. But they seem to do it with other stuff just fine. So um, I know that at least Amazon is planning to get into this game. They're looking at some original content. Um, I don't know. I just think it's really fascinating. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens here uh, over the next couple of years as these people who've been content to stream other people's uh, content realize that, you know, they can move into the content creation business and do pretty well. And what what's actually kind of interesting, which I just kind of realized, is Hulu has a lot of original and exclusive series. That's true. And no one really talks about that. They don't do a very good job of... Um, of putting them out there very well. That's so I watched, true. I watched you, one of them. I think them. the only times I see ads for any of these Hulu things is when I'm on Hulu. Yeah, like watching something else that's not an, a Hulu original. And then they're like, um, Misfits on Hulu. Yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting that I picked up Misfits, which I watched the first couple of se- seasons of, but um, but didn't really, um, didn't really follow... Uh, much, much past their jump to Hulu from, I think, the BBC or something like that. Um, right. But I can't remember the name of the show that I watched. It was an, it was another political show. It was about, like, a like a Congress person running for office, and it was, like, a workplace drama among the staffers on the young, you know, the young, idealistic, underpaid staffers on this congressman's... Uh, Congressman mm. staff. Um, Battleground, that's what it was called. Oh, okay. Um, no, I, you know, I think that Hulu um, ha- is in a tough place because they are so much, um, so tied to their owners, you know? No, yeah, so it's like, that's true. You know, they're, they're owned by, uh, you know, NBC, Fox, and those other, those other, uh, you know networks uh, so you, you don't really see them launching a full broadside attack on the model the way that you do with Netflix so you know they're going to make an original series but it's probably going to be pretty cheap and it's never going to really seriously compete with the stuff that they're doing for other people no um, that's true that's true it's certainly not going to have names like Kevin Spacey in it yeah how many sus- subscribers did you say that uh, Netflix has? Thirty-three point three million. Yeah, see, Hulu Plus has one point five million. Oh yeah, that's another reason why they're never going to get that kind of uh, 
that kind of uh, growth. So it, this uh, this article is interesting. So it says, um, with Netflix spending a reported one hundred million to produce two thirteen episode seasons of House of Cards, they need five hundred twenty thousand people to sign up for a subscription for two years to break even, right? So if they've got one one hundred million show, they need five hundred thousand people to sign up. If they want to produce five shows a year, they would have to sign up 2.6 million people more than they have. So, you know, they've got 33.3 million subscribers, and they need basically a 10% increase to justify their original programming. You think that you could get... You know, do you think... it's? I have a tough time seeing people signing up for a recurring Netflix subscription based just on House of Cards, but House of Cards, Arrested Development, and three other really good shows... Um, I could see people paying. I could I could see people who don't currently have Netflix I, signing I can up. See, I can definitely see a lot of people uh, signing up once the rest of development hits. Yeah. Um, and it's not like it's ever going to go away. You, you don't ever have to worry about them. You don't have to worry about them losing the rights to a House of Cards. Right. Yeah. What were you going to say? I think a fair amount would have signed up for House of Cards. I wonder. I wonder if we're going to learn at their next... You know, sometimes you learn these details that they're like investment reports and stuff like that. Because um, that would be really fascinating to know, uh, you know, surrounding the date that House of Cards came out, how many people, how much, how many more people they sign up than they would have normally signed up during that time. Right. Yeah. I also wonder whether they're going to be able to show their original content in overseas markets as well. Because I think that's a huge untapped resource for these companies, which is basically no one streams overseas. Hulu doesn't do it. Netflix doesn't do it. Amazon doesn't do it. Most of the individual networks don't do it. So you can't go to like Fox.com and watch streaming episodes of anything if you're in another country. Um, pretty much the only people who do this is Apple. And I don't really know why they can do it and others can't. But when I was in Japan, I could buy stuff from the iTunes store and watch it. Um, oh, that's weird. if Netflix could say that their original programming is available to people in, you know, England and the rest of Europe and and stuff like that. That's a that's a huge competitive advantage. I don't know what the what that's going to be like, you know, if they could just do that, but uh, uh well, I mean, I mean, it, they own the rights, right? Yeah, they must they must own the rights. Then but, yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah. So I don't know, I think that's I, maybe that's something that they're looking at too. They're saying, you know, we're limiting ourselves artificially to the 300 or so million people who live in the United States, but um, I don't even—I don't even think you can stream Netflix in Canada. Like, no, you, I think no, wait, no, you can—you can definitely stream Netflix in foreign countries. It just has a different library. Oh, okay. Um, but like, it's like it's bullshit. Um, well, like one one gripe: uh, Canadian Netflix gets Community. It's like mm. what? <laughs> Sony, stop being a bitch and just yeah. Interesting. Anyway, uh, anything else about House of Cards or Netflix or this whole crazy thing that they're doing? I'm really excited to watch the rest of the you know the next uh, eight episodes or something. I'm I'm worried I'm going to blow through it too fast and then I have to wait a whole another year. Yeah, I know. Um, there's a certain amount of it that's a little bit creepy. Like, um, hey, hey, Rufus, can you stop drinking water, please? I know you're thirsty, but it's going to be really gross sounding in the microphone. 
Um, <laughs> um, one of the things I think is really interesting is how is how uh, open Netflix has been about the, the fact that this is an algorithmically created show. It's like they basically said, people who like House of Cards also like movies directed by David Fincher and movies starring Kevin Spacey. And then they went out and they just were like, uh, you know, we're going to just make that TV show. So they remade House of Cards with David Fincher as executive producer and Kevin Spacey in the lead. And I don't know if something wrong with that. I just wonder what kind of other combinations they know about that they're just going to start rolling out. You know, like we've noticed that people who like Joss Whedon also like, um, I don't know, uh, Farscape. So we're going to commission a Farscape TV series written by uh, Joss Whedon. I, I don't know. Like it, that one's more obvious, I think, than Kevin Spacey and House of Cards, which don't seem to have any link at all. But I wonder what kind of stuff that we're unconsciously telling them that then they're just going to later, you know, turn into turn into perfectly targeted TV shows created by computers. It just seems it seems weirdly impersonal. Yeah, and it's like, you know, once they get the actual people involved, like the the you know, it's not it the whole show's not created by computer. It's like they've just got a computer pitching them who they're Yeah, it's know, like, it's like a computer's playing show. Mad Libs. Exactly. But like it really smart Mad Libs where it's not exactly. well just yeah, like good Mad Libs, not yeah. <laughs> funny Mad Libs where everything is good. First sign of the morning light, old glory's in the sky. Across the pond, it's afternoon and the Union Jack flies high. We're on our first cup of coffee. We're on our third cup of tea. Actually, right, so we're talking about Cars 2. Uh, okay. So here's a weird thing about Cars 2 that I don't think was the situation for me for any other of the Pixar films we've talked about. Except for the fact that a lot of people didn't really like it and it was generally held to be kind of disappointing. I knew literally nothing about this film. I didn't know the plot. I didn't know who was in it. I didn't know... I I assumed Paul Newman was in it, but then I realized Paul Newman died, and he probably wasn't in it unless they made it longer ago. I couldn't figure out when he died in relation to when the movie was made. So it was like a weird... uh, a weird experience to go into a Pixar film with literally no idea what it was about. Yeah. No. um, When I watched it, I was surprised at how little, like, um, Owen Wilson was, like, relegated to a B-plot sideline yeah. thing. That really that really was in, inconsequential to the film, except for the fact of having the main character from the first movie somehow fit into there. I was so tickled by this film. I, first of all, I should say I enjoyed this movie way more than I expected to. Um, I uh, think it, it it actually is much better than the original Cars movie, um, mostly because they realized that Owen Wilson it was like the least interesting, least likable character in the film, and they basically just decided to instead make it like a James Bond spoof with Tomato in it and Michael Caine. Yeah, I mean, well, it was awesome. like it was like Get Smart for Kids. Yeah, I know. I was so I was shocked when the first scene of this movie came on. I was like, "Is this some kind of like spy movie spoof?" And then the whole movie was just a spy movie spoof. I was like, "This is incredible!" It was uh, this movie blew my expectations way out of the water, um, which was not something that I expected to be saying on this podcast. Um, oh, I don't know. I was 
I still was not really into it. I thought it was great. I thought the whole uh, section in Japan was great. Um, I thought that the scene with the Japanese toilet was one of the funniest things that has been in any Pixar movie, uh, just in terms of like a sight gag. Um, I don't know. There's still all kinds of like, you know, yeah, uncomfortable questions about the world of the cars. But, oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I ended up enjoying it way more than I expected to. Even if it did have a very unnecessarily convoluted plot that didn't really make any sense at any point in time. Yeah, it really didn't. But that's also kind of like a James Bond movie, I guess. Sort of. Um, yeah, they brought back remarkably few characters. I don't know how I feel about centering the whole film around Mater, because I'm not a huge... I didn't think his character was that funny in the first movie. He's he's the most, obviously, kids-oriented character. Yep. Like, in that, maybe, no, maybe that, in that's a big history. Pro- part of why I did not like this film. Yeah. Um, but I think he's definitely funnier than Owen Wilson was. Well, he's probably f- funnier than Owen Wilson, but I don't think that makes him a a reasonable star of a movie. I wouldn't want to... I didn't like that they wrote an entire movie. Just about him. For him. Yeah. I think he was kind of like the uh, accidental breakout star of the first film. Well, you're you're probably right. Yeah. I mean, um, he's certainly the most quotable. Mm-hmm. I guess if I was a kid and I didn't and I hadn't seen, say, Austin Powers or Get Smart before, mm-hmm. all these jokes might have been a little funnier. Yeah. But as yeah. it was, I just felt like it was kind of a rehash of a parody of a genre of film. <laughs> I enjoyed the performances. I enjoyed John Turturro as the Italian car. Um mm. I I liked Michael Caine, you know, doing his Michael Caine thing. As Michael Caine is yeah, British and um just what he does. Yeah, no, he's just it's just his his deal. I liked the the uh kind of world hopping, especially since the first one was so focused on the kind of American Southwest, which is a beautiful place, but um I think it would have been really boring if they had set a whole nother movie there, so I thought it was fun to see Pixar interpret Tokyo and Paris and London and, uh, you know, like Italy uh, or Rome or wherever that was supposed to be. Yeah, uh, I don't remember. Yeah. I don't think that it... Maybe, maybe the problem was just my expectations were so low that it was easy for the film to clear it, but um, I don't know. I found myself laughing out loud a lot. Wow, I, f- I, I was... Bored. You were bored. Through many stretches of the movie. I <laughs> checking the time. Seeing how much longer I had to sit there. Yeah. And I was like it's like, oh I should look at something on my phone. No. Put your phone away. Focus on the movie. <laughs> you have to take this seriously. Yeah, I know. This is this is work, goddammit. I think it's interesting because I think that a lot of people accuse this movie when it came out of being kind of like a merchandise grab. Um which is also kind of leveled at the original Cars too, and, and I think John Lasseter, the the director and one of Toy Story's founders, was kind of angry about that. Um, I'm not angry, but like hurt by it. You know, it's a it's a strong accusation to it is to fling around. Um, I think if anything, like this, uh, this movie and Cars, the original Cars, are maybe the most artistically motivated films there, 
because I don't really see Pixar greenlighting more Cars movies if John Lasseter isn't there saying these are my babies and these are the movies that I really want to make. You know, like I don't know. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. Um... Well, you know about the the spinoff coming out. Yeah, they're gonna release planes, which I don't even know how that one's gonna work because planes are like in the air most of the time. I don't understand how this is gonna work at all. Um, so, so I, I actually think that maybe the other Pixar movies, the other recent Pixar movies, like Brave and stuff like that, are actually maybe more like focus tested or, or targeted to a specific demographic. But I think they're better films because, um, maybe because they are more able to see the weaknesses in them because there's not one guy sitting there being like, you know, this is the movie I want to make. Right. If that even, if that makes any sense, like this reflects the you know the flaws in the vision of John Lasseter because this really does seem like a movie that he is passionate about in the same way that uh, that stuff gets edited out, um, you know, before it gets to production when when everyone's involved. I don't know. Uh, I was expecting to come in here and complain about this movie, but I actually think it was better than I expected and not like an embarrassment to the studio as I was expecting it to be. So. I mean, that's my verdict. Ultimately, Pixar makes uh, family or children's films, and I think it's, it'd be it's great for kids. I just don't think that there was a lot in it for me. Yeah, that's probably true. Which I usually there's usually a lot more. Yeah. For other people, for non children. Yeah. So we. Uh... We ranked our our Pixar films. It was a, the last one of the of the series because we talked about Brave kind of in the middle of this, right um, back in uh, this back past in summer or, or something. So, uh, should we go through our lists? I, I don't know how we should do this. Should we read the whole thing at once, or or like one by one? Or I'm really interested to see because I you know I know we have we have similar views on some of them and divergent views on others. So I'm interested to see how our lists kind of don't. Or do stack up. Um, oh, see, I, I've, I'm looking at my list. And I I want to keep tinkering with it because I'm not I'm not quite satisfied with it. <laughs> well, that's the thing about lists like this too is that you can make a different list depending on you know what day of the week it is almost or you know which one you've seen most recently. Right. But sooner or later, you have to you have to make it uh, official. So, how do you want to do this ranking? Should we count down from the end, like one by one, or should we each say our full list and then the other say our full list? I don't know. What do you think's better? Uh, I feel like if we say them one by one, it's probably more, you know, suspense, but also people could get confused about which ones we've already said. Yeah, that's probably true. Harder to keep the lists in your mind. All right, so you want to just say your whole list first? Um, okay. So at the bottom of my list... It's Cars 2, and then Cars, and then A Bug's Life, and then Brave. I think those four really are kind of Pixar films that I don't have a strong inclination to watch again. Yeah. And then we get to the middle section, which is just a huge jumble. (laughs) I I was sitting there pacing back and forth, up and down, up and down. And I'm still not really satisfied with it. Yeah. Um. But then we have Toy Story 2, which seems ridiculous that it should be that low, but it is. Mm-hmm. Ratatouille, Finding Nemo, 
Monsters, Inc., and The Incredibles. And then in the top four, top four, I don't even know if it's really that accurate. But then we go up, Toy Story 3, Wally, and then the only one that I'm sure of, aside from my bottom four, is Toy Story at number one. Toy Story is pretty much genius. Fascinating. I love it with with like all my heart. That's interesting, and, and Toy Story is a fantastic movie. Um, our lists do differ somewhat um, in in interesting ways, I think. So I'll I'll start from the bottom of the list. I got Cars, okay, A Bug's Life, Cars Two, Brave. So we're kind of similar so far. Yeah, I mean, so we switched around a little bit. You clearly liked Cars Two more than me. Yeah, Nine is Ratatouille. Eight is Monsters Inc. Seven is Toy Story Two. And I've got Up and Wally. Which I put in the category of super likable and almost on the favorite movie list, but which I think have better first acts than second and third acts. Is my favorite pro- my, is my problem with both those movies is that when I think about the parts of them that I really love, they're all in the beginning of the movie. Mm. Um, and I've got number four, Toy Story three. Number three, Toy Story. Number two, The Incredibles, and number one, Finding Nemo. Interesting. So some interesting differences. You obviously like Monsters, Inc. way more than I do, because that was pretty high up on yours. Uh, Yeah, it was six. Six. And you, well, you had an eight out of six, yeah. and again... I was shocked at how low you put Finding Nemo, though. I mean, it, well, it, 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 it jumped around a lot. Yeah. At one point, it was at number three. Yeah. I just think Finding Nemo is like a perfect blend of like their incredible visuals and are just a rock solid storyline um great voice cast like it just every part of that movie works in every single way which is true of toy story as well and i have a stronger nostalgic connection with toy story but for some reason i think i feel like finding nemo is just like a more epic achievement and uh the incredibles is also just a huge favorite of mine so you Mm. could could, i think you could credibly say that those top three Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, and Toy Story are all kind of tied for number one, depending on my mood that day. But I think, objectively, the closest I can come is Finding Nemo to a perfect Pixar movie. Looking back, I think you're right. definitely about Wally being stronger in the first act than the last half. Mm-hmm. And if it, if it was just Wally on Earth by himself. Yeah. It would be such a. It, it, I think it would make more sense where I have it on my list, and maybe I should move it down. But again, see, this is why I just tinker, tinker, tinker. Yeah. But uh, I think it's also interesting that, like, really any of these movies I would watch at a drop of the hat, except for the last four. And I even would probably like Brave enough to watch it at a drop of a hat, too. So it's really just the two Cars movies and A Bug's Life, which. I've seen some people put A Bug's Life at number one. They think it's the best movie Pixar's ever made. I don't understand that point of view. I don't either. I think that's just crazy, but... <sighs> so we're done with Pixar. What are we going to do now? That's a good question. I uh, I don't have an idea for, for what our next... I think I feel like the last time we finished, we were able to announce... No, actually, that's not true. We went a couple episodes without anything. Uh, Well, we... At the beginning of 2012. I... I think I think we I think we had Pixar figured out, but we just did that end of the year review as a break. Yeah, I think you're right. But we're kind of at a loss right now. Yeah, you know, we, to retool. It's interesting because, like, as we discussed the last time, the requirements for what we need here 
are like kind of kind of uh, uh difficult to come by so we need something that's like short enough that it can be manageable so like firefly 13 episodes uh pixar 13 films which you know meant we're not talking about the same thing for too terribly long um i think we actually it, i think pixar was actually a little bit weaker than firefly in this aspect where i think it needs to be a little bit flawed uh, I feel like there were a lot of weeks with Pixar where we were like, "Yeah, this movie's just really good." That's true. I th- uh, 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 yeah, that happened right around when we started well, getting to Wally and Up. We're kind of like, exactly. Oh. We're like, "Hmm, this movie is also super excellent and incredible." Um, so I, 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 uh, I actually think Firefly worked a little bit better for our purposes here because there were episodes that one of us liked way more than the other there were episodes that some of us didn't like at all and, and we were I don't know I feel like we had more to complain about which people do seem to like as well um, so I, I don't know it's it's interesting to me that uh, I also think it's interesting that it took us pretty much exactly a year to do the 13 films um, we did our, our yeah. story episode in January of 2012 so that's not a not a bad amount of time to be talking about one thing i guess i mean yeah if we were on our game although we would have been done by halloween yeah so anyway if you have ideas for us uh feel free to to send them our way we're we're looking for to get back to a more normal recording schedule whatever that means um certainly no more like five month or six month sabbaticals no no too long like we took it would have it would have made so much sense if we had taken it right when we finished we should have squeezed an extra pixar episode in there about something and in mid-October before the hurricane hit, but we couldn't quite make it happen. Yeah. So. Uh. Anyway, I feel uh, I feel good about this. It feels like we've it feels like the you know the end of season two of our of our podcast. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. What can what can people do, Ryan? They can they can tweet us at Pop Cultural Osmo. Uh, they can find us on Tumblr and reblog all our stuff. Um, find me on Twitter publicly and you on Twitter privately and we love feedback and everything like that so they should definitely you know if you have ideas for us uh, send them our way Oh, so what do you think the most notable Super Bowl commercial was this year? Most notable? Well, I think I have a most notable and I have a best. Or in my opinion, best. So I think the most sure. notable one was definitely the Dodge Farm one. Oh yeah, okay. uh, with uh, the old Paul Harvey speech over late, which was like a beautifully manipulative example of like film and, and photography and voice overall working together. And I think it's kind of bullshit because I don't know. I, I got a lot of that uh, romantic image of the American farmer back in Missouri, and it never really sat that well with me because I don't think. Even traditional farming is like all that, quote unquote, natural. 
I know exactly what you mean. Or, like, good for the environment. So, like, when it's, like, and God needed somebody to care for his garden, so he made a farmer. It's like, bullshit. <laughs> he created a perfectly functioning set of biospheres that had naturally attained equilibrium, and then mankind came through and, you know, cut it all down and planted a bunch of corn and soybeans instead. Um, and uh, it also really rubbed me the wrong way that all the farmers in the commercial were white, even though something like 80% of American agricultural workers are Latino and... So I had all kinds of problems with it, but at the same time, I think that it's like uh, it's a perfect example of how to use film to manipulate your emotions. Uh, and it's the one I've heard the most people talking about after the Super Bowl. But I think the best one was the Joe Montana jersey one with the guy yeah. who squirts the ketchup on his shirt, and then it goes all the way through to the you know they can build this Montana land for it and stuff like that. I thought that one was great. It's like one of the only ones I liked. Yeah, me too. Um. I, well, like, I kind of. I just wish Joe Montana was actually in the commercial. <laughs> I, I kept waiting for it the whole time. It doesn't make any sense because Joe Montana like is in tons of commercials. You know, like he's in Skechers commercials and stuff like that. He's not like one of these guys who doesn't do any uh, any advertising. So I don't really understand why they wouldn't put him in there. But mm. I don't know. Uh, I I honestly can't think of another one that I liked very much. I yeah. I did not like. Bud Light's commercials. With the voodoo or the, whatever? The voodoo thing. And it was weird because um, Bud Light's earlier commercials that they'd run with that theme. The superstition thing is really good. Yeah, which I really liked. The previous commercials, but the whole connecting the commercials between, like I didn't see one of the first commercials, and so that meant I didn't really understand some of the later commercials well, uh, until they re- replayed it, and then it was, yeah, I didn't like that one at all. Um there were some f- pretty forgettable Hyundai ones. Uh, Volkswagens like a... this year was kind of funny with the white guy oh, who talks with the, the Jamaican, Jamaican thing. But it was nowhere near as funny as a little kid pretending to be Darth Vader. Oh, that one was classic. Which was last year, I think, or two years ago. I think maybe. it was two years ago. So, I think it's old. Well, yeah. relatively speaking. Yeah. So, but I, I definitely feel like the one I've seen the most people talk about is the farmer do is the farmer one. But anyway, I feel like. I don't know, I feel like somehow Super Bowl commercials always have this reputation of being really good, but then on a year-to-year basis, they're almost always really bad. Like, I feel like we were having a conversation last year on the podcast about how disappointing the Super Bowl commercials were that year, and I bet that if you go back, they've actually pretty much always been disappointing in the moment, with only maybe one or two memorable 30 seconds per year. Yeah. Was Jill rooting for the Niners? Yeah. Okay. Good. No one likes Ray Lewis and his dumb face. No, nobody likes Ray Lewis. Although I do kind of like Joe Flacco. I I have nothing against Joe Flacco. He's he just seems like a nice dude. You know, he grows a funny mustache and he swears on television and he. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, he's a fine. Qu- he's just not like the best quarterback in the NFL. Reason, so for some reason, Joe Flacco, who's always been really good, but no one's really liked him very much. I like. Joe Flacco way more than Matt Ryan, who's in a similar position, where he's a similar kind of quarterback who also nobody respects, uh, but who usually plays pretty well. But for some reason, I just hate Matt Ryan and want to punch him right in his weasel little face. And Joe Flacco, I, I have no problem with it all. Mm, yeah, I'm just indifferent. 